opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Good morning. You're listening to Ask a Leader, and I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Today, we are going to cover some pretty diverse domains uh, as uh, emergency contraception and the guidelines for women's health are uh, a bit under uh, additional scrutiny, and there's some give and take and back and forth with that this last week. Um, We're going to talk about those guidelines, the emergency contraception, with our local Planned Parenthood chapter, Stephanie Kite. She's a senior vice president of community affairs there. Then the obstacles, the huge obstacles that young farmers find in getting started, they're going to, it's going to be taken up by Emily Oakley, affiliated with the National Young Farmers Coalition. She'll be our guest in the second half. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. a leader. My first guest is Stephanie Kite. She's always been a part of nonprofits, consulting with and working for organizations such as Mount Carmel Hospitals, Irvine Temporary Housing, the YWCA, and Child Abuse Prevention Centers. But she's returned to her feminist roots when she joined Planned Parenthood of Orange and San Bernardino Counties in 2004, where she remains as the Senior Vice President of Community Affairs. While this interview is about covering the historic guidelines ensuring that women receive preventative uh, services at no additional cost under the Affordable Health Care Act for um, America, uh, today we'll first attend to the Obama administration's handling of its decision about the availability of the contraception known as Plan B. Welcome to Ask Alina Stephanie Kite. Well, thank you so much, Claudia. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners. It's it's a wonderful time to have you on with what's been breaking in the news. Well, so let's talk first about that development. Um, Health and Human Service Secretary Kathleen Sebelius overruled the Federal Food and Drug Administration's decision about the availability of the contraceptive known as Plan B. So first, let's distinguish what is the difference between Plan B and RU486. Well, uh, Claudia, Plan B is a high dose of oral contraception or a high dose of what we commonly call the pill um, that uh, causes um, the uh, egg not to implant in the uterus. It doesn't in any way interfere with an existing pregnancy versus RU486, which is commonly known as medication abortion which is uh, an abortifacient that causes a termination of a pregnancy. They're completely different. So what we're talking about here 
is really a form of contraception. And Stephanie Kite, why do you think that Health and Human, Human Service Secretary Kathleen Sebelius of the current administration, why do you think she overruled the Federal Food and Drug, Drug, Drug Administration's decision to make Plan B available to any, uh, any, uh, anyone in uh, the marketplace? Well, we don't know, uh, but we certainly are disappointed that Health and Human Services has chosen to maintain the current age restrictions on emergency contraception as the decision has no medical basis. The Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, was in favor of lifting the available availability restriction following a thorough review of longstanding scientific fi- findings. We do know um, that there uh, is that Scientific evidence shows that emergency contraception is a safe and effective way of preventing pregnancy, and the right decision was to lift the age restriction. Well, then, um, there's many, there's lots of editorial um, commentary weighing in day after day since the uh, the ruling was overruled. I believe it was on Wednesday of uh, the first week of December yeah. here. So yeah. I I'd like to know um, with the um, 10-year track record that we have now, the data attending to that, what do we know about emergency contraception and risks for teens? The FDA approved Plan B one step, or what we call emergency contraception, in 1999. It was the first progestin-only medication specifically designed for emergency contraceptive use and was cleared for over-the-counter sales in 2006. However, doctors have been prescribing emergency con- uh, birth control since the 1960s. Is and that right? Studies, yeah, and the studies that have been published as early as 1974 have shown emergency contraception to be safe and effective. Well, and I think what's interesting when we talk about safety, that when we think about pregnancy, that's really it's very hard on one's body. We talk, we're weighing safety of contraception methods versus what kinds of complications occur from a pregnancy itself. Well, right. And, you know, what, what we're really talking about here is making sure that women, all women, have all the tools and medications they need to prevent an unintended pregnancy um, so that, and, and actually, one, you know, an unintended pregnancy is one of the leading causes are reasons for uh, abortion. And so, you know, by making sure that women have all these forms of contraception, it's one of the things we can do to bring down the rates of abortion. Well, let's go on to another aspect of this. Those who support restricting the availability of emergency contraceptive think that it uh, that teens are less responsible than adults, and therefore it's more of a risk that this be available, Plan B be available to them on demand because they're going to use this as their regular, their mainstay birth control. What do you think about that? Well, you know, Claudia, actually the studies have shown, um, and there's been multiple studies that have shown that teens are as likely as adults to use emergency contraception correctly, and that both groups report little, if any, difficulty using the method. Research has also shown that teens understand that emergency contraception is not intended for regular use and that rates of unprotected sex do not increase when they have access to emergency birth control. Okay, that's the science. Well, then there's one yet another aspect to this. Why are those 
that are also supporting the restrictions, why is it important to those women who are already of the age where they can already get this without a prescription, why is this restriction so important to them to ban it for teens? Right. So there's a lot more implication to uh, to this decision than just the fact that teens don't have access to this over-the-counter. The age restriction must be listed in order for emergency contraception to be stocked on consumer shelves and sold through non-pharmacy retailers instead of being held behind pharmacy counters where you have to ask for it. You know, broader access is particularly important in states and counties where pharmacists are legally allowed to refuse to dispense emergency contraception. You know, in the United States, currently six states explicitly allow pharmacies or pharmacists to refuse to dispense contraception, including emergency contraception. So allowing EC to be sold by non-pharmacy retailers will help broaden women's access, all women's access to this vital contraception option and prevent unintended pregnancy, which is a goal we all have in common. So ideally, Stephanie Kite, tell me then, you would think that we could, we could uh, I think the, the, um, the most effective way to make this, to broaden this availability is be where anybody could buy a tampon, anybody could buy, that would be at a service station, at any kind of a public uh, washroom or anything like that? Would that be what you envisioned beside, beyond uh, any kind of like a, a supermarket type of setting? Uh, well, I'm not sure where the manufacturers would totally distribute this, but I think, um, you know, making it available um, through, you know, a, uh, on the pharmacy shelves at, your, at our CVS here, and perhaps in a Target or a Walmart, would certainly give women more access to this. And especially women who are living in rural communities where yes. there might be just one pharmacist and that pharmacist won't dispense it. Um, we, we, we have documentation in other states of pharmacists who won't re- who refuse to uh, sell contraception to a woman who's not married, no matter how old she is. So it's, it's those situations that we're really looking to, to impact. You know, I, I know that you know, I'm a mother of uh, three girls, so I share every parent's anxiety. I'm about, a mother of one daughter right, myself. Yes. Right, and, or, and son, you know. I mean, we, we all have anxiety about our teens, and all of us want our teens to turn to us when it comes to their health. And, you know, most do. But for those teens who don't have a parent like you or I who can talk to them, it's important that they have access to um, contraceptions so that they can prevent unintended pregnancy. You know, at Planned Parenthood, we encourage and support parents in their effort to protect their teen's sexual health. And, and you back know, that up with those great workshops that you do for right. all ages of a child's uh, and a young adult's sexuality. So you're back yeah. in that whole plan very nicely. And thank you. And we have classes for parents who might be a little bit timid about talking to their kids about sex and their sexual health. Um, we all want our young people to make responsible decisions, including delaying sex until they're ready. However, as a trusted provider of women's health care and, frankly, the largest provider of sex education, Planned Parenthood knows firsthand that not all teens can talk to their parents when they decide to become sexually active. It's crucial that all young people have access to the full range of contraception in order to prevent unintended pregnancy. And even though this decision, um, we don't agree with this decision, let me assure you that young people can still turn to Planned Parenthood uh, for emergency contraception if they need it. So if you're a teen, um, you can come 
Planned Parenthood to get EC. And let me assure you as a mom, Claudia, that if your teen does turn to us, that we will give her the health care that she needs at this time in her life if she has decided to become sexually active. Well, that's that's a really a reassuring sort of contribution in the community, I must say. Um, for those of you who've just joined us, we're talking with Stephanie Kite, Senior Vice President of Community Affairs at the Orange County and San Bernardino offices of Planned Parenthood. And we're talking about the Plan B availability, that uh, the decision that human, Health and Human Service Secretary Kathleen Sebelius overruled FDA um, on making those uh, contraception, uh, the contraception, emergency contraceptive known as Plan be available. Well, um, I, I don't know if you had anything more you want to say about that, Stephanie, before we go and talk about the uh, cherished subject that I wanted to talk with you since August now about the um, Affordable uh, Health Care Act um, of, let's see, of 2008, um, 2009, I mean. Um, did you have anything more that you wanted to say that I might have forgotten to cover Well, I here? just want to, re- I do want to remind um, all of your listeners um, that emergency contraception um, is um, designed to be taken with fi- within five days of unprotected sex. Um, and so if you do find yourself in that situation, um Get to your pharmacy or your uh, plant, local Planned Parenthood um, within five days and get that emergency contraception as uh, and it's most effective taken soonest. So that's just important for people to know. Well, that's good to hear that. And when you were talking about Planned Parenthood, could we not anticipate that the free clinic, some of the um, the uh, the lower income uh, based sorts of um, or the clinics serving lower income households, do they not also have these, or does it just vary from one practice to the next? Um, you know, we're fortunate here in California that um, our Medi-Cal program has uh, a program called Family Pack in which all women who don't either are under or uninsured can have access to the uh, family planning needs, uh, their family planning health care. So you can turn to any planned parenthood for any of your family planning needs, including emergency contraception, and um, we will uh, find a way to make sure you get the health care you need if you don't have the funds to pay for it, including getting emergency contraception. So even if you are old enough to buy it over the counter, but you can't afford it because it's typically about fifty to sixty dollars. Is that right? Dose. I should have asked about that. Okay. Yeah, about fifty to sixty. One dose. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a multiple pill regime, but you'll get one set, um, and it's about fifty to sixty dollars. So if you can't afford that, please do come to Planned Parenthood. We do have um, ways to cover your. For America, um, and we there's a, a just a host of things, and I know Planned Parenthood is well positioned to meet all Ready? of these mm-hmm. needs. Actually, uh, there's first. Oh, among the list is Wendy Pally. So, Choose what, your method of egress. Would you tell us what is meant in the language that these services, the guidelines cover services without the cost sharing? How does that work? Because what they're saying is that you have to. There are certain services that every health. Yeah.
services. There's a recognition that if we take care of our health, if we, if we present, prevent disease, that that's the more effective and uh, cost-efficient way of taking, bringing our health care costs down. And so the Health Care Reform Act has said certain services must be covered um, under that. And that includes um, much of our, well, what we would call our well woman exam, our cancer screenings, um, and uh, preventive, preventive health services. There was um, the big question, and this is where Health and Human Services got it right, um, about whether contraception should be considered a preventive health service. And it's and they, in. It's in the guidelines. And they did. They, they, they had to meet. Uh, they considered that decision for over a year, but they did finally decide to include contraceptive, uh, contraception as um a preventive health service. So but, we're very excited about that. But of course, there's the big fight now with the um, Catholic, that's being led by the Catholic Church about whether um, they should broaden the refusal clause for that. For that one, um, right. Not whether it's dispensed, but whether it's actually uh, underwritten by the federal program. Right, right. So that's that's still in the works, and there were many editorials flying about that. But now the now it's the Plan B that's getting the attention. Well, then the next another one is screening for gestational diabetes. That's a really important one to uh, right. pr- to prevent complications from an over uh, what you get oversized head and shoulders. Uh, right, right, right. With the fetus, those pre- right? The preventive health, the the testing and the preventive health services. Um, our, and all the prenatal care is going to be covered now so that when a woman um, is pregnant and is uh, carrying her uh, child to term, that we can have the healthiest baby possible. And we know that preventive health services uh, is really important during prenatal, uh, that prenatal stage of your pregnancy. And then another one is the human, let's see, I have to give the long term, the papillomavirus, mavirus. How do I say the HPV? Human papilloma. Oh, now you're going to get me saying it wrong. Papilloma virus. Pa- papilloma virus. Papavirus. Right. HPV. We all just say HPV. It's clauses. a lot easier. It's just easier. <laughs> so right. that that is uh, that's and test DNA testing for women that are 30 years and older. So that's that is another preventive means. And well, they, HPV is so critical. The HPV vaccine is human papilloma virus. That's it. The HPV vaccine is so critical because it is the first vaccine that actually prevents cancer. Um, And, you know, it's most effective when given to young men and women uh, before puberty um, and certainly before they become sexually active. And uh, as a parent, again, I'll go to our parent place, Claudia. Right how fabulous is it that we live in an age when our children are going to be able to get a vaccine against at least one form of virus, of cancer? I mean, that's just incredible. And it's just a matter of uh, months, really, that the that the young men have been included. Well, it's because of the right. Health Care Act that uh, that they right. are now included. They are vectors as well of the virus. Yep. So um, They are the vectors, right? We're the ones who actually get the um uh, cancer, but they're the vectors. And now this also will help prevent many forms of genital warts, which is what um, HPV uh, can affect the men more with the genital warts. So it's a fabulous vaccine. Uh, I really encourage parents uh, to do that. There's no indication that giving a 13-year-old a um, cancer prevention vaccine in any way increases her likelihood to engage in sexual activity. It's just 
nothing out there that indicates that. What we do know is that we will prevent cervical cancer uh, in her future. And what a fabulous age we're living in that we can have that for our children. Well, I, what a great thing for a parent. Uh, marshalling their child into getting that uh, vaccination that, you know, that they're saying to their child, I really care about protecting right. you from v- certain strains. We know it, it's not all cancer, but there are particular the majority, ma- majority the of those majority of the ca- cervical cancers are caused by these strains of HPV. So that's that's a, a, a rather affirming kind of uh, message from a parent to a child. Inst- Very affirming. Not, and not to also- be. Right. Talking about taking care of our health and being responsible about our health and preventing disease is so important to teach our young people uh, at a young age. And this is just a terrific vaccine. And for those parents who may not have the resources, it, it's, it is a very expensive resource. Yes, it is. Many um, health insurance companies are now covering it, and it will be covered under um, the Health Care Reform Act in the future. But if right now you need this for your child and you don't have... Mm, of funds, please do come to Planned Parenthood. We have a special program with Merck who will help um, make this vaccine available to any uh, young person, regardless of their financial situation. Well, Stephanie, are you seeing uh, more people come in with that uh, that Merck offering? Yeah. Are they taking you, know, you we, up on it? Absolutely. We are seeing, there's an awful lot of uh, young uh, parents of young who are bringing their uh, young people to us as well as their own OB-GYN to get this vaccine. I know I had my daughter vaccinated. Uh, Mine too. Was good for you. Um, so there are lots of us who are making sure our teens are protected against cervical cancer and genital warts for their future. So, Stephanie Kite, you are, um, are you also administering this vaccination to males as well as females? Yep, yep, yep. yep. Come on in. Okay. We'll, we'll serve you. We'll I figure it out. I remember asking that at one of your... Uh, one of those all important meetings forms that you put on some years ago, and it wasn't wasn't quite the time. And I think that the um, the, the, the vaccine was not approved. It right. had been they approved, had, and it wasn't right. exactly the Gardasil wasn't widely enough available to cover all the young women that were filing in for that. So right. things have, have changed. Wow, what a difference some years make. Well, then there uh, is under the preventive care guidelines are the sexually transmitted uh, infection counseling um, services. Yes, isn't that terrific that they're going to cover that as well to make sure that young people know how to protect themselves against STDs. We're living in a time where one in four high school girls has an STD. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's pretty shocking. That's that's high. That's deep. It's too high. I think it's unacceptable to all of us. That's genital to genital, oral genital. It's all of those. Yes, it's everything. It's just all the STDs. And so being able to talk to young people about how to prevent this is a critical public health issue um, for all of our uh, young people, um, regardless of their socioeconomic status. We need to protect our young people, and that starts with good education about their sexual health. And then another guideline addresses the HIV screening and counseling. Right. Again, another preventive service that we need to get both the screening and the education to prevent that. So um, I think the the Obama administration has done a great job of including both education and um, uh, information about and services about how to prevent these um, diseases. Then the, another one we're, we're getting down to near the end of the list is, is breastfeeding support, supplies, and counseling. That's and terrific. Isn't that terrific, right? We know that breastfeeding is so important for this a healthy start for our babies, and they have covered those services so that every woman can have that option for her baby to give her baby the healthiest start possible. 
And we did have uh, earlier on this program in this in the, the around Memorial Day, we had a La Leche League uh, contributor um, on this program, and uh, all those things that are uh, that you could talk about that this breastfeeding gets that child on such a tremendous start. And there's there isn't any there's nothing that substitutes that breastfeeding. So it's okay. a it's right, a, and so having that covered so you can get the the education and the supplies that you need while the window's so open. Right, and so and while so many of us are going back to work, um, you know, we need to have those supplies to be able to take with us. And now, now it won't be finances that stand in your way of giving your baby a healthy start. Indeed, and then there's domestic violence screening and counseling. Does Planned Parenthood have a role in uh, that kind of a service? Well, of course. You know, when you come, when a woman comes to us um, for her health care, we we are always looking for uh, various signs of uh, violence in her life. Um, uh, any kind of abuse or domestic violence, we, we do those kinds of screenings and then make, make appropriate referrals if uh, the patient needs support and or reporting if we suspect abuse. So Stephanie uh, Kite here, she's with the senior, she's the senior vice president of community affairs at the Orange County and San Bernardino offices of Planned Parenthood. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on www.kuci.org. As we're talking about domestic violence screening counseling at Planned Parenthood, Stephanie Kite. Um, so you have the people that deal with the social working aspect and the clinical part, and you're able to. Uh, you're, you have all the pieces in place so that uh, a, a, a young lady coming to you can um, have that addressed and it, uh, you're able to get cut through what maybe layers there one has to cut through to address the actual problem? Well, we don't have, you know, we work along with the, the network of services in Orange County. So we're not necessarily providing domestic violence counseling here at Planned Parenthood, but we will screen for it and make the appropriate referral and okay. get anyone the help they need. Um, in whatever situation she is. So we have quite a vast referral network. Um, you know, because we we see a pretty young population, uh, the average age of our patients are 18 to 24, we're often the first health care provider they encounter in their life on their own, right, without their parents' engagement. And so we, we um, spend a lot of time helping women understand how the healthcare system works, what are the issues that are going on in their life, and where can they find the resources in the community to get the help they need to lead the healthiest life possible. And you, the Planned Parenthood's been doing it for such a long time. I had it when I when I interviewed John Dunn. It's 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 been since the '60s in the Orange County, and it's it's been much longer than that. Um, right, it, we're almost in the nation. We're almost 100 years old, and we've been had healthcare services here in Orange County since 1965. Wow. Wow, what valiant efforts and what tremendous results that have you have all uh, seen on uh, on behalf of public health, I must say. Well, I must also say that this is about all the time that we have. Stephanie Kite, Senior Vice President of Community Affairs at the Orange County San Bernardino Offices of Planned Parenthood. I thank you so much for being on our program today. And thank you, Claudia. And I wish you a happy holiday. And to you and yours. Thanks. Goodbye. Next up, in the second half of our program on Ask a Leader, we'll be speaking with Emily Oakley, who is uh, going to talk about preserving farmers, not just farms. I've got you deep in the heart of me. 
So deep in my heart, you're really a part of me. I've got you under. Well, not only have we got Mel Torme under our holiday skins, but we have a delightful remaining half portion of our program on Ask a Leader to take up the National Coalition of Young Farmers. My guest, second guest on the program, is Emily Oakley, owner and operator of Three Springs Farm, along with her partner, as the New York Times calls her, her husband, um, at um, the Three Springs Farm is a diversified, certified organic vegetable and fruit farm in northeastern Oklahoma, where she's calling in this interview with us this morning. Together, they cultivate over 50 different crops and more than 150 individual varieties on five acres, folks, of land. Their goal is to maintain a two-person operation that demonstrates the economic viability of small-scale farming. Emily and Mike sell their produce directly to their customers through the Cherry Street Farmers Market in Tulsa and a 100-member community-supported agriculture. So that's what we're talking about when you hear about CSAs, folks. Emily is also a board member of the National Young Farmers Coalition, and we will talk about them in some detail today. We'll, uh, so we'll talk about both of Emily's roles. Well, welcome to the show, Emily Oakley. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you are on with all the things that you have to do to keep keep the farm going and weather. That's I, I checked it out. It was like 39 degrees uh, over uh, yes last night, and I don't know uh, how cold it's uh, setting in to be there. Well, let's Emily Oakley disabuse the skeptics out there that are listening or that are going to talk to our listeners about whether or not young farmers are equipped to deal with the challenges of agriculture and all the vagaries of the business that it poses? Well, I think that starting any new business is always a challenge, regardless of the profession that you're getting started in. But farming is, in and of itself, uniquely challenging. So I think that people who seriously want to start a farm, particularly young people, who aren't just having sort of a romantic notion one day, but who are seriously and genuinely looking to find land and start an operation are not likely to jump into something without having done some good training and research and background into what they're about to get themselves into. Um, I know farmers who are young and beginning across the country, and not too many of them have jumped into it uh, blindly. I think that The survey that the National Young Farmers Coalition did with about 1,300 farmers who are young and beginning um, from across the country found that 74% of those young and beginning farmers had done a farm apprenticeship and found that as really critical in training them to becoming new farmers. And I can assure you that if you've done a farm apprenticeship, you have a pretty good sense of what you're getting yourself into. Um, obviously always starting off on your own, you know, moving from that apprenticeship experience to being a farm owner and operator in your own right is always a challenge, and you won't know everything, but um, having a farm apprenticeship experience under your belt gives you a really holistic perspective of the field, the office, record-keeping, and marketing aspects of owning your own farm business. So and whether... I think... I'm sorry. And weather. 
What I mean, you have to be meteorologist, don't you, to know how to handle? <laughs> yes, you do, and um, I think that in certain parts of the country, that's more true than others. But absolutely, I think that most farmers probably have many different weather sites on their computers and apps on their smartphones if they have one. Okay. Well, uh, you started out in California. Can you tell us a bit about how you uh, decided to leave your organic farming enterprise in California to go to the Tulsa area? Well, um, my partner Mike and I did an internship on a very successful, well-known organic farm in Northern California called Full Belly Farm. They're about an hour and a half north of San Francisco. And uh, we chose actually to try to do an apprenticeship in California because agriculture there is so successful and well-established. So um, we were lucky to get this apprenticeship. Uh, We interned there together for a year. Then I went to grad school for two years. What did you take there? Pardon? What would you take in graduate school? I studied international agricultural development at UC Davis. A good place for that. Yes, indeed. And Mike continued working on Full Belly Farm and then another farm called Eatwell Farm, um, also in the sort of Davis area. So we were just workers on farms in California. We didn't own our own business there. And we wanted to stay in California in many respects just because there's such an established and excellent farming community there, a lot of collaboration with other growers, but land is so unbelievably expensive. It was, you know, a dream to even think of being able to afford something there. So I'm originally from Oklahoma, and there are very few young farmers here, very few organic vegetable farmers in this state in general. So I convinced Mike that it really wasn't going to be that scary, that he really should come, that there was a lot of opportunity here, and he was willing. So we've now been in Oklahoma for eight years. And we leased land for three here in Oklahoma, and we've owned our own farm now for five years. My goodness. And I want to find out about the, I mean, there are coalition members throughout the country. There isn't yet, though, one set up in California, do I see, in the from your website for the National Coalition of Young Farmers? That is correct. Um, there are state coalitions in a few places, but... Um, we are a very new organization ourselves. We're about a year old, and the state coalitions are something that we hope to get funding for in the next year or two to be able to focus more of our energies on. But absolutely, a place like California, where there are so many beginning young farmers, is ripe for a coalition or collaboration of those growers, because together that network is obviously much stronger you can also seek each other out for or sorry for support or advice, um, borrowing equipment if you're in the same region. Um, there's so many ways that being connected helps you both emotionally and even economically on your farm. And uh, tell us, can you um, you have had the apprenticeship, and you uh, also were you? Let me back up from the apprenticeship because of uh, my uh, let's say my anecdotal experience with community gardens every I'd, I'd say 95 98 percent of those folks were raised with a family that had something going on in the backyard or they had an actual farm enterprise is this 
something in your background as well in Oklahoma or and can you talk to some of the gen, the demographics of coalition members? Sure. No, we did not have a garden growing up, and my parents thought that yard work was the least fun activity they could engage in. It's also pretty hot here in the summertime, so just to give them a little bit of credit for that. But no, I had no farming background, neither did Mike, um, and neither do actually a lot of first career farmers. So when I say first career farmers, I mean people who are choosing to farm as their first career, either out of college or high school. So people who may have studied something entirely different in college, like English literature or whatever it might be, um, and then who have pursued apprenticeships and internships and study in agriculture and chosen to become farmers. So the survey that we conducted that I mentioned earlier found that 78% of the respondents had not been raised on a farm. So that's a pretty significant number of first-career, beginning young farmers, people who are looking to agriculture, particularly usually small-scale and sustainable agriculture, as a means of kind of putting, you know, to practice what your philosophies are. It's sort of like what Gandhi says, be the change you wish to see in the world. And I think a lot of beginning young farmers find that farming is an opportunity for them to put into action the things that they would like to see happen, particularly around local food economies. And I will ask everyone to forgive the unintended but necessary pun. Are you uh, also with uh, your CSA uh, looking uh, locally at, uh, with the all coalition members uh, to have a, your own farm farm team or for students, um, school children, to come and see what it is that you're doing, plug into the public health message, public plug into the the uh, the business message to young people. Absolutely. Um, actually, in the state of Oklahoma, there's a nonprofit organization that has a register of all farms that are willing to host school groups or farmers that will then drive from their farms and go into schools and bring presentations to the students. And probably every year we have between half a dozen, maybe even up to a dozen tours on our farm or visits that we take to school groups. Because absolutely, I mean, growing up as a kid, if somebody had asked me in middle school or elementary school or even high school, if I thought I wanted to be a farmer, I definitely would not have raised my my hand and said yes. So we feel that going into schools and talking to young people and showing them that farmers really do exist um, and that it's a profession that they might seriously want to consider might help increase the chance that more young kids raise their hand and say, yes, that they do want to be farmers. So absolutely showing kids where food comes from, how it's done, that it's a viable and exciting career is really important to us. I know uh, that uh, Jamie Oliver, in a rather uh, broadly disseminating, uh, I think it's a YouTube video, no, it was a um, the uh, questions um, ma- questions worth considering kind of a series. He's showing school age children if they can recognize various produce, and they have no idea. And when they got to he sh- got to him showing them the potato, that was the scary part. They had no idea what that tuber in front of them was. So um, it's I guess it's just again identifying and then seeing the. Um, seeing how how it's done out there. And so do they, uh, so are you seeing any kind of results yet with some of that kind of an outreach with the school groups? 
Absolutely. You know, it's funny. We actually did a presentation at a university class, which I know is, is a little bit higher up there student, um, certainly an older student, but we've been doing a presentation with the same university class for a couple of years now. And this fall when we did it, the answers to the questions that we posed to the students were answered in such a much more educated and aware way than even a few years ago. I think just the term local food has become so much more popularized and well understood that the students were able to relate to us in a way that they hadn't been, as I said, just a few years before. So I think the awareness of food, of where it comes from, the fact that it grows in the ground and or comes from an animal and it's not just the shelf of a grocery store is definitely increasing at all age levels. Um, I think that there are certain communities that are still underprivileged in terms of access to that education and information and resources, but I think that slowly more programs are being developed to reach out to school children across the country to help educate them because although the current survey respondents of our National Young Farmers Coalition survey are the current beginning young farmers, it's those school children of today that will be the beginning young farmers in the next generation. So the we farm definitely team. want to get to them while they're young. Exactly. because our, Now, do you have some statistics? I don't want to blindside you right away, but um, consider uh, the demographics here. The, there are not sufficient numbers replacing farmers that are retiring tiring and expiring. That's true. So what yeah, do we the average age of the farmer today is 57. Wow, that's high. That's really... It is, which is why it is so important to support beginning young farmers because it's a matter of food security. If we want to eat food grown in this country and in our local communities in the next, you know, 25 to 50 years, we absolutely have to start putting more attention towards inspiring and encouraging and supporting new young farmers. Um, That is happening, but many young farmers today are successful in spite of the current system rather than as a result of it. I think that there are many challenges and obstacles that young farmers face, and many of them are easy ones that we can remedy um, and support as a nationwide community that... um, our National Young Farmers Coalition is hoping will happen over the next couple of years. Well, let's talk about the hard ones, those hard uh, barriers to uh, entering into this business um, and that the uh, National Young Farmers Coalition has uh, done a great deal of study recently. And before we go into that, I want to remind anyone just joining us, my guest is Emily Oakley, owner and operator of Three Springs Farm and board member of the National Young Farmers Coalition. So we're talking now about the the barriers to maintaining an agricultural business. So the one of the main ones is the access to capital, to getting credit and all of that. What needs to happen? Uh, what kinds of incentives are within reach, Emily Oakley, to provide young farmers with the necessary funds to get their business started and, and maintained? Absolutely. Well, I know from my own experience, in order to have any beginning working capital, Mike and I had to save our own money working on farms or even in graduate school and use that initial 25000 that we'd saved as our beginning startup capital. It was virtually impossible to get a loan from any sort of private institution or even a public institution. 
There's an agency called the FSA, which is the Farm Service Agency, which provides access to credit to farmers. But it's actually pretty challenging as a beginning farmer to access even those federal programs. For example, there's a requirement from the FSA when providing a loan to a beginning farmer that you demonstrate three years of direct farm ownership experience. Oh, my gosh, that's a chicken and an egg problem. Yeah, exactly. If you've been interning for a couple of years and you are technically ready to start out on your own, well, you haven't been owning a farm for three years. Um, So one thing that we would like to suggest at the National Young Farmers Coalition is that that requirement be reduced just from three to two years, a very small step, but one that would be substantial in helping young farmers get access to land. Um, Another problem is that the loans that are available through the FSA are usually capped at 300,000. Well, in areas of the country like California, where land values can be extremely high, that can be a pretty big barrier for a beginning farmer because they might not be able to find anything within that price range. Additionally, when sellers are looking to sell their land and a beginning farmer, let's say they're coming in with an FSA loan, the beginning or the, the landowner is probably going to want to find a seller or a buyer who's willing to and able to make that commitment right away. Well, when you have an FSA loan, you don't have a pre-approval process that you can take to a seller, which is something that the National Young Farmers Coalition is recommending, that pre-approval for beginning farmer loans be allowed so that the beginning farmer can take that to the seller and say, look, I'm pre-approved. You know, even though it's going to be a long process to go through this government loan, bear with me. They're going to be working with me successfully. Um, And then another thing is that in states like Iowa and Nebraska, at a state level, they've actually implemented tax credits and incentives for landowners who sell or lease land to a beginning farmer. And that's something that could easily be replicated successfully at the nationwide level. So those are some of the things um, that we can see happening to increase access to land for beginning farmers. That's within reach, and that's perhaps fiscally a neutral kind of proposition. I mean, two years of of farming seems like a demonstrated um, term uh, to, um, to for a guarantee for some kind of line of credit. Absolutely, and pre-approval is also something that is fiscally neutral. In terms of access to credit, which is the other major one, um, that's a little bit trickier because obviously you have to be providing that loan, not as fiscally neutral, but Some of the things that we've recommended are extremely minimal um, and very successful. So, for example, right now, loan amounts are typically pretty large when looking for credit loans, and Mm -hmm. many beginning farmers don't need such a big loan. But because what they're looking for is so small, it's sometimes a lot of paperwork for the FSA to go through and not a lot of reward in their and their thinking in terms of the size of the loan. So one of the things we'd like to propose is a microcredit loan of up to $35,000 for beginning farmers being defined as ages 19 to 35. So that's just basically easier access to a smaller amount of money that beginning farmers need to get started. Um, Also, something that is 
somewhat fiscally, it's not fiscally neutral, but we could sort of think of it this way, that the 2008 Farm Bill actually proposed and successfully voted on individual development accounts, which is a savings program in which the beginning farmer, whoever it is, um, puts in, let's say, $5,000, and those $5,000 are then matched. So it's an incentive program for creating a savings account. And that program was authorized by the 2008 Farm Bill. It just wasn't funded. (laughs) So if we could get funding for that, that would make a big difference. Well, maybe... Yes, go ahead, Emily. No, go go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, please. You're teaching us a great deal. There's a public service loan forgiveness program that already exists for professions like doctors, teachers, and government employees. And we'd like to see that extended to beginning farmers, particularly because... You know, many beginning farmers are getting out of school with substantial student loans. And entering into farming is certainly not a get-quick or get-rich-quick scheme, and it's not something that is going to get you a substantial amount of money over the lifetime. So if we could implement some sort of federal loan forgiveness program for beginning farmers, it would would go a long way to helping beginning farmers ease up some of their cash flow situation and make it more financially viable. Well, I know Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio is uh, championing some of these causes with his latest farm bill. I'm trying to think what we have here. His latest, um, it's called the Local Farms Food and Jobs Act. And uh, I think we need to look to some of the, uh, the, the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition. Their website would be a good way to find out whether Sherrod Brown's uh, legislation can address some of this, um, and I'm sure the coalition would be, um, you know, allies in, uh, you know, advancing that legislation. But it's probably a little discouraging right now, Emily. I guess when you're, you're watching eyes focused on um, budget chicken playing, uh, you know, yes. when you think we've well, got so much to, at stake here, this, there's got to be legislation that's advanced so that people can move on with their enterprises. Absolutely, and the National Young Farmers Coalition did work with the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition on the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Opportunity Act of 2011, and that has been sponsored, um, and we're just hoping that the government will be able to come together in a collaborative way to address some of these larger budget issues, but to certainly not overlook beginning farmers in the process. Well, I want uh, to remind everyone just joining us, my guest is Emily Oakley, owner and operator of Three Springs Farm and board member of the National Young Farmers Coalition with various chapters around the country, uh, mostly, I think, in the northeast of the Great Lakes and the central heartland. Um, and they have uh, their website is, of course, the uh, young, let's see, the National Young Farmers Coalition. You go to that, uh, .org. Um, and um, you've told us you've really been very helpful in uh, outlining what's at stake and uh, what can be done to remedy this, um, you know, situation. Uh, Emily, is there anything else? We, I mean, we were talking about the credit. Uh, now, uh, uh, talking about funding in general, um, are the uh, there's some apprenticeships that um, the seed. Uh, farm website has uh, there's a there's a deadline for their apprenticeships uh, this week on December fifteenth for who's who's streaming somewhere in uh, in the in the barn here and uh, wanting to get involved but I I just want before we close if 
you had any other pitch, any takeaway message for our listeners here on Ask a Leader? Well, I would say that, as we mentioned earlier, supporting young farmers is key to our overall nationwide food security in the future. And it's also something that, as a country, I think is part of our national identity. We think of ourselves as coming from an agrarian background, and to keep that true, we need to be supporting people who are willing to actually get out there and grow that food, because it's it's not the easiest thing to do in the world, but it's very, very rewarding. Um, I would say that if you're not going to be a farmer... What you can do is support a local farmer, and particularly a local young farmer. If you shop at a farmer's market, try and find somebody who looks like they might be a beginning or young farmer. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them what sort of support they need for their operation. Encourage your friends to do the same. If you don't shop at a farmer's market, certainly start doing that. Or also the CSAs that we mentioned earlier, if you can find a community-supported agriculture program by a beginning young farmer, Excellent. Of course, if you want to get on the more political side, there's always looking into the Farm Bill and the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Opportunity Act that I mentioned. So those are things that are very simple to do but have a very meaningful impact on beginning young farmers. Well, thank you so much for that. You really laid it out for us today, taught me a lot, and I know with our listeners, I want to thank you, Emily Oakley, for being on our program. She's the owner and operator, as I said earlier, the Three Springs Farm and board member for the National Young Farmers Coalition. I wish you all the best in this, and we hope that with the podcast, this information keeps moving out there. And uh, happy holidays to you and your partner, and all the farmers that are going to put some wonderful things on our table, thanks to all their toil. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot, and you take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Well, we are very blessed to learn so much. Right behind the rain, Oklahoma, every night, my honey, mama, mama, sit alone and talk. And watch a hawk making lazy circles in the sky. We know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. And when we say, Yo! we're only saying, You're doing fine, Oklahoma. Well, besides this particular, um, bit of business, I sure want to make sure that everybody knows about some events coming up in our midst uh, today and later this week. We have uh, on tap for today, uh, for all of you that are uh, public health um, trackers here, we'll, um, at the Irvine Hall at the medical facility will be Dr. Richard Jackson. He's a uh, physician, professor, and a chair of environmental health sciences at UCLA, and he will talk at Irvine Hall where we live and what we build shapes our health in ways our patients and you scarcely suspect. It'll be very informative. It's been it's a two-part series. This is the second there to um, fill us in on the, uh, the, the public health scene there. Now, I also want to bring up the uh, important uh, message of the um, Alzheimer's Association's not annual but occasional Memories in the Making art exhibition where you can enjoy art, music, 
and hors d'oeuvres. And so uh, you can RSVP Melissa Anderson at area code 949-757-3705. That is going to be Thursday, December 15th from 8 until 4, uh, excuse me, from 4 to 8 p.m. at their Irvine Chapter Office at 17771 Cowan Suite 200. And then we have, um, so I wanted to say about that particular um, setting, it's um, really amazing. The art that these people with memory loss disorders produce, it explores their memories and their emotions. And it, uh, it means it speaks to volumes to the families, to caregivers, and to the rest of us. Initiated by the Orange County Chapter in 1988, the Memories in the Making program has since expanded to 26 states and four countries. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening today to the program. Next up is George Rosales with George Had a Hat. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.